Our second lesson comes from the book of Zechariah. This is Zechariah 9. And uh, before we read, I'm just going to give a brief disclaimer. Uh, Firstly, hello to all of you, um, and happy Sunday. It is so good to have you uh, here with us. Uh, My name's Ashley. In case you happen to be visiting, um, I'm the priest here at Christ the King, and we're thrilled to have you with us. Um, Given that last uh, week was July 4th, and um, this uh, assigned text for us today, we've been preaching out of the Old Testament prophets, and so we're reading Zechariah today. Um, This assigned text um, is overtly political as well. Um, I couldn't help but notice uh, the correlation. And so today's sermon will be perhaps the most overtly political that I have ever given. And if that fills you with immediate dread, same. (laughs) We share that in common. Um, Here's... Here's the thing, I, I typically don't, and the reason I'm giving a disclaimer is because if you're, if you're here, you couldn't possibly know. I've been in ministry for almost 20 years and have never preached a sermon, perhaps quite um, this overtly political. And um, the reason is because when we gather, one, I only have like 25 minutes, and so you can't do a whole lot or say as much as you ever want to in 25 minutes, particularly on really divisive issues. And um, I need to just say, for those of you who may be new to this space or or new to being Anglican, um, the aim of everything we do um, is all working towards this table and is in the service of the Lord who calls us to this table. In other words, everything that we do in this space is in the spirit of communion, meaning everything we do is meant to draw us to the Lord and to one another. And so it's not that you avoid potentially divisive issues, it's just that you don't go around making soapboxes out of them. You know what I'm saying? Um, Because everything is done in the service of reconciliation and communion with one another um, and with the Lord. And so um, in the spirit of communion and um, in humility, uh, both in the service of this table um, and the Lord who calls us to it, um, it's that spirit that I pray very much marks our time together. And so um, it is, we have gathered as a people of God, not just uh, in a spirit of humility, but also one of courage, right? That maybe the, our faith necessitates that we are people who are marked by both courage uh, and humility. And so it's in that spirit that we are going to, as the Anglicans say, boldly turn to the word of God. This is Zechariah 9, verse 9. The prophet writes, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion, Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And perhaps one of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture, the prophet writes, Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Lord Jesus, unto you, Lord, do we commit this time and this day and everything we say and do here, Lord. You who are our good, great, powerful, mighty, peaceful, humble king, we bless you, Lord. 
We love you, Jesus. Send your spirit here. God, comfort us, encourage us, challenge and convict us, Lord, every single one of us, Jesus, where our hearts stand apart from you and your kingdom. Give us your peace, Lord, that we might have communion with you, Father, and with your church and with your world. We love you. It's in your name we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Return to your stronghold, no prisoners of hope. Uh, these are the words of Zechariah the prophet. Last week, we were reading the words of Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah was preaching and teaching in a very different time. And so um, context matters always. And so briefly, just so that we're aware, I actually think it matters a whole lot for how we hear the, uh, the words of Zechariah. If you'll remember, uh, Jeremiah was the prophet of the exile. He was the weeping prophet whose job it was, he was tasked by the Lord to prepare people for the sure coming of exile. Not a fun message to have to give. And he gave it. He preached that the exile was coming all the way until it came. And then he preached about um, what to to do uh, with Babylon while they were in it. So he preached before the exile and well into it. Where we are now when we land in the book of Zechariah is after the exile. So almost 90 years or so later. So we've skipped forward in time. Um, the exile has happened and so has the commission to return home. So all of those who had been in exile in Babylon have now been sent back home to Judah, to Jerusalem, um, to rebuild. So the exiles happened, and we've returned home. And yet home is, of course, a difficult concept for an exile, particularly for these. Zechariah was very likely a toddler when the returnees came back to Jerusalem, small boy at the very least. And so for him and his parents, uh, all they had ever known was life in Babylon. So when you were thinking about home for the exile, where is home exactly? Is home the place where your ancestors lived? The place that you were taught to dream about and the songs you sang, sing us the songs of Zion. You remember Psalm 137. Is it that place you've been dreaming of since you were a child that your ancestors taught you to dream of or is your home the only place you've ever known? Is it Babylon itself? Which no doubt for many of them was a pretty kosher, not kosher, comfortable, <laughs> decidedly not kosher uh, life for them. That's the life they'd known. Where is home? The place where you've always been supposed to be or where you are. Regardless of what they'd been told about Jerusalem, when the returnees got there, home was in fact for them a pile of ruins. Uh, the landscape was literally marked by the failed attempts, the failed history of their ancestors. The temple was in ruins, the wall was in ruins, haunted kind of, you know, by homesickness that they carried with them. Also, the longing for home that their ancestors had had and the home that had been and was no longer. Seventy years they'd spent in exile and another 20 returning, longing for something in some place, a time that they couldn't find and didn't know how to get back to. I think, regardless of whether or not you have ever experienced any kind of exile, 
I would assume few of us in this room have experienced sociopolitical exile. Some of you may have. But exile is otherwise a kind of figurative, metaphorical concept for so many of us, and yet homesickness is not. Lots of people can identify with that feeling, even if you've not moved a lot. You know, longing, Chris talked about this last week, the human experience is marked by a longing, a desire kind of always to be somewhere or to have something that you don't yet have, you know. So I was thinking about that, and um, I'm going to read you now a quote from Stephen King, holy and sacred as this space is. This is from The Body. Stephen King says, Homesickness is not always a nostalgic, beautiful emotion, although that is somehow the way we always seem to picture it in our minds. It can actually be a terrible, keen blade. It can change the way one looks at the world. In other words, homesickness can cause pain and create tension. It created tension in Zechariah's world, and I believe it is creating tension in our own. And in some ways, that tension is related, similar, although, of course, very different. And here's what I mean. The returnees were motivated by a longing for home. Um, this homesickness, it fueled them. It gave them energy for the work ahead of them. Um, it also gave them courage to, like, step out and leave the place where they had been. All positive things. Like, homesickness can be, in that way, really positive. It can drive us. That's good. But it also created a lot of tension with people who were living already in the land. So this is an important fact. Jerusalem wasn't empty when the returnees got there. What happened in the exile is that when the Babylonians came, they carted off those whom they chose, and it was a lot of them. But many of them were social elites. So you think about your Daniels. You remember the book of Daniel? Daniel came from an elite family, and he was taken because he was so beautiful and so smart. He and his buddies and carted off to Babylon to serve the palace. Similarly, think about Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a priest, and in his day, priests were educated scholars. The scholarly types, the artisans, the craftsmen, they were all taken to Babylon, and other folks were left in the land. This would be largely your working class. And so they'd been there now for two generations, still there, still at home, when the returnees all come back. So you've got not only this clash of visions of home, but a cultural clash as well, because these folks are coming back, you know, in some ways, very patriotic, because they're going back home, you know, Zionists, literally. And they're taking their dream of home with them, but they're also, like, kind of Babylonian, you know? And so, like, is it pure patriotism? Not pure like that which is defined in the land, not like that which existed among those who'd never left. Ah, so a clash of visions of home and a class of visions of what it meant to be a patriot. So hard for us to relate to in these days. The Bible, so foreign. The 4th of July is a complicated holiday, and please don't feel defensive if it's not complicated for you. In some ways, that would only serve to prove my point. It is complicated. Many people feel complicated about it. I drove past several churches uh, last week decked with American flags declaring last Sunday as Patriot Sunday or Freedom Fest. 
complicated. I love my country. I really do. Um, little known fact, my dad's a songwriter, and he wrote songs for Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings. Um, perhaps the most well-known of, known of them, a, a song that uh, Willie sang at a farm aid called Living in the Promised Land. Um, one of my favorite photos is of my family is um, I'm about three, and my dad has on his bandana, American flag bandana. My mom's got on her American flag bandana, and I've got on my little three-year-old American flag bandana, and we're all sitting together. My dad smoked weed and wrote songs for Willie Nelson. Need I prove my patriotism or my southerness <laughs> to anyone? Like Paul said, I come from the tribe of Benjamin <laughs> by southern standards. But there's a reason that every Sunday we say the Apostles' Creed and not the Pledge of Allegiance in this church. And not just in this church, but in churches all over the world. And that's because every Sunday we're called to pledge our allegiance to a wider communion. Every week we stand up and say together with one voice, no matter where you're from, no matter what country you call home, no matter what language you speak, we say with one voice, we believe in one holy and apostolic church. One holy Catholic, little c, global, worldwide church that stretches across tribe and all other allegiances to call us together to one table, to one Lord, Love of country is a beautiful love. It's just that that love, like all my loves, has to come into ultimate submission, subservience. It must be shaped by a higher love, a first love to the kingdom of heaven and to the one to whom that kingdom belongs. And before you say yes and amen and assume that that puts me decidedly on one side of a political aisle. Let me just say that actually much of my thinking about patriotism has been formed by so-called conservative Christians. At least, I think we feel confused about what that means anymore, but, you know, people who used to be able to say they were conservative Christians, and we all kind of knew what that meant. Language, it's hard and slippery anymore. One of those people is a scholar named Paul D. Miller. And if you need help thinking about these things, I commend his work to you. Not wholesale endorsement. Every person I quote here is not a wholesale endorsement of everything they've ever said or ever done. <sighs> but I like what Paul has to say about patriotism. He says this. He, by the way, is a scholar at Georgetown. He served for George W. Bush and, believe it or not, for Barack Obama. Patriotism is the love of country, of our home, and of all things familiar to us. I'm using the word love in a very specific and Christian way. To love is to desire the good of the other. I desire the good of the United States and of my fellow Americans. That means I love and accept them as they are, and I also want to see us strive towards greater measures of peace and justice to recognize our past failings and turn from them. 
Nationalism, however, does not accept the country as it is. It strives to make the country and its people into a kind of country and a certain kind of people, ones that conform to their preferred cultural templates of Anglo-Protestantism. They can't love America as we actually are because we've departed so far from their vision of what we should be. They can only love America insofar as we abide by their imagination of what America used to be. I grew up singing my country tis of thee. I still know all the words. And I still like to sing it. But as I got older, and I read the words of Frederick Douglass, if you've never read What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, as a patriot, you should read it. If you've never read Let America Be America Again by Langston Hughes, you should read it. If you've never sat with the words of Dr. King and his dream of America, then you should. Because hearing those words and having my imagination and my worldview expanded by them made things more complicated, words like home, words like freedom, you realize those words, they are powerful, they mean something, but they're complicated for many of us. And so now when I pledge allegiance or when I sing my country, Tis of Thee, I hear their lives, their words, their heart and experience in what I say. Their lives have shaped my understanding of freedom, my understanding of home my love for my country, to which every single one of them belongs. Powerful words, a longing for home, it binds us together, and y'all, if we're not careful, it will tear us apart. Chris last week talked about how the idea of peace for most of us is marked by a reality that would be void of tension Peace as we understand it or imagine it, home, peace, is some place that's void of, of tension. If we could just have a nation full of people like us. Uh, you know, I heard somebody say, a Christian say, that actually recovering the true foundation of Christian hospitality will be to deport all of our foreign immigrants so that we can recover true Christian hospitality because hospitality necessitates a shared understanding of culture. It's hard. It's wrong. It's bad for us, y'all. It's not who Jesus is. It's not who he is. If we could just have a nation full of people like us, if I could just have friends who are just like me, if I could just have, you know, a church full of people just like me, then we would have peace. Then we would feel at home. And I will tell you, it is perfectly human for you to feel that way. And that is because your humanity has fallen. My humanity has fallen. 
And so the part of my nature that craves and longs after a home comprised of people just like me or a peace composed of people just like me, it is born out of my fallenness, and that fallenness has submitted itself unto a good teacher, one who comes to us humble and triumphant. At the same time, somehow, he is both of those things, and his vision of hospitality is better than mine, and his vision of peace is better than mine. I decided that a long time ago when I bent my knee to him and made him my king. And I became a servant of his kingdom. So the problem for the returnees and those left in the land, the people of the land. Do you remember that scene in Nehemiah, by the way, the book of Nehemiah? This is an aside, but do you remember that scene in the book of Nehemiah where they're trying to rebuild the wall, Nehemiah, and, and they keep getting interrupted by the people of the land? And so they take, they, they take up arms. You, ever, you try building a wall with a sword in one hand, fighting off your neighbor. Consider the power of your Bible for a minute. Hold that image in your mind. Can you build a wall with a sword in your hand? Can you rebuild the home of God, Zion, with a sword in your hand? Tough. So what is home for the returning exile or for the person of the land? Here's how I see it. you got a couple of choices. Actually, three. Option one, you abandon hope. You give up the project and you go home. You give up on God. You give up on Zion. You give up on your dream of your ancestors. It's all too complicated. It's too hard. And we're out. I'm going back to Babylon. I kind of liked it there, you know. They had money. They had power. And I like all that, so I'm out. And I will tell you, many, many, many people I love dearly are making this choice because it's hard. What is home? How do we get there? What do we do? So that's option one. You can opt out. Option two, we can go to war, fight, build walls, double down, kick them out. We're smarter than they are, stronger than they are. Force of will and brawn. And we'll call it holy, the Lord's work. We could do that. Some of us are. Or, and if, you know, you find yourself as a Christian person in this world, who is just thinking, there must be some other option. And I'm not talking about politics anymore. I'm talking about how the space we occupy in this world as a Christian person. Is there an or? Are really the only options, either we abandon ship and all hope or we double down and we fight. Surely to God there must be another way. And that's why I love this Bible so much and this Lord. Because the or for Zechariah was Zechariah 9. Lo, your king, triumphant and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey. He comes. He comes to you. What's so wild about this image is that it's a contradiction in terms. So our great message of hope, the great message of 
hope and a way forward that Zechariah was commissioned to give to people in the midst of terrible division was this one, of a king coming, triumphant and victorious, riding on a baby donkey. Lo! Yay! Your king, triumphant, victorious, on a baby donkey. Does it make any sense? Symbolic, of course. Donkeys were symbolic of humility. Kings, symbolic of victory. So which is it? And Zechariah says, yes. Which is it? Indeed. And here's the thing. When you need real help, it is not wrong to want, like, real help. And so, like, all of the poetry, you're like, yeah, yeah, poetry, peace, humility, yeah, yeah, I get it. We need real help. And so in our fear, we can default to thinking, so what that means is I need, you know, Superman on a stallion. Flexing his muscles because that's what real help looks like. That's what real power looks like. And that is not what the people of God have been given. And here's what I need to say to you. That does not mean that we do not been given power or a way forward. The option for the Christian is not between power or no power. It is the power of the cross or the power of your culture. That is the choice that is in front of you. It is not power or powerlessness. It is not a matter of power or no power. It is what kind kind of power does the Christian have? When you hear people say, you know, I'm so tired of hearing, you know, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers. I'm so tired of hearing it. Stop saying it. The answer is not to stop saying it. The answer is to pray. Actually pray. Stop saying it if you're not praying. But maybe we should choose to pray. Because what if we did? What if we actually prayed? Perhaps there's real power in that. Perhaps there's real power in the faith of Jesus. Perhaps. What I love about this image in this text is that this a people in desperate need of hope are given a vision that is so contradictory for both sides. Everybody thought, yes, oh, we've prayed for Messiah. We've prayed for him to come, and here he comes. Just not like we thought. And we prayed for power and deliverance. And it's just not what we thought. Because instead of delivering us, what does he say? Return to your stronghold, prisoners of hope. What is a stronghold? Another word would be fortress. Think about it. Think about the imagery. What does a fortress do? It protects you and defends you. Yes. It also holds you in your place. That's hope. Hope will defend you. It will protect you. It will keep you. It will also hold you to something that you probably wouldn't choose if you let your fear drive you or your anger drive you. We're held by something and perfectly free. What a contradiction in terms. Return to your strongholds, you prisoners of hope. The faith of Jesus, this way of Jesus, it is both salvation and a stronghold. I'm not going to lie to you. It will defend and protect you, and it will keep you bound to something that is greater than yourself. 
And more of us should have heard that growing up instead of being promised Cadillacs and mansions in the sky. I think it has confused us. This way of Jesus is costly. It's so good, though. In my moments of profound conflict, when I am the most angry, when I am the saddest, when I am so frustrated, when I cannot think my way to a solution or a way out, it is this vision of Jesus that I see. My king, triumphant, victorious, and riding on this donkey. Something I both understand and cannot understand. Something I both see myself in and do not see myself in. And isn't that exactly who he is? Like me and more than me. Everything I ever wanted and hoped for and then some. That's who he is for all of us somehow. Return. You can't escape. You can't leave. You're a prisoner of hope. You can't fight. Be hopeful. On the National Mall, when Dr. King gave his I Have a Dream speech, some of you may remember in that speech, do you remember the words, go back? Everybody came to get fired up, thousands and thousands of people, just hoping, hoping he would give them any kind of indication it was revolution time. And instead what Dr. King says was, go back to Mississippi. Go back to Alabama. Go back to the coal mine. Go back. You prisoners of hope. Believe in something, hope for something, pray for something, work for something. Be in it. Your king, he is riding into the tension, not away from it. It was true then and it's true now. So I don't know what the stronghold is for you. I don't know what you need to go back to. I don't know if you need to go back to faith because you gave up. Come home. Be here. Pray with us. You want something better, pray with us. Take communion with us. Read. Love with us. If you've been fighting, put it down. Put it down. Come pray with us. Come take communion with us. Help me think. Write. Say something new. Be courageous. We're prisoners of hope. Citizens of heaven. And he is our Lord and our King. Amen. Amen. Have mercy, Lord Jesus. I pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would help us return to whatever it is that we need to return to. If it's you, Lord, to whom we need to return, would you call us? Jesus says, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you.
and learn from me. Help us, Jesus. If it's relationships we need to return to, God, give us mercy and help us. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray these things. It is for hope of your kingdom, Lord, that we do these things. In your name, Lord, we pray. Amen.